Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. As you observed, I'm a fairly practical guy. I want to get things done. That was President Biden on Thursday. We're going to get a lot done. And if we have to, if there's complete lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster, then we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. He's sort of, kind of signaling here that he's open to making changes to the filibuster in the Senate if it continues to be a roadblock to passing legislation like voting rights. It used to be you had to stand there and talk and talk and talk. I'm Eugene Daniels. This is Nerdcast. Black civil rights leaders, voting rights advocates, and elected officials are putting more and more pressure on Senate Democrats to nix the filibuster. The argument? Keep the filibuster or pass voting rights legislation. But they can't do both. It's complicated. This bill, called the For the People Act, or H.R. 1, would drastically transform nearly every aspect of the American electoral system, from campaign financing to how elections are conducted. I got your attention now? Good, because this bill, it has a chance of passing. Maybe. Me and my buddy Zach Montalaro are covering this potentially life-changing shift. You and I are our, our friends, or buddies. Mm, strong word. But... <laughs> it is a strong <laughs> word. We're, we are work friends. <laughs> wow. Brutal. <laughs> anyway, we're about to explain it to you. You're welcome, listeners. You've been wanting to write a version of the story that you and I are working on, basically since the Democrats um, got the majority in the Senate um, earlier this year, huh? Yeah, so I had this idea for the story on January 6th, which a lot of things were going through a lot of people's minds at the time. But yeah, when I heard that Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff won their respective Senate races in Georgia, that means Democrats had the narrow possibilist Senate majority. But with that, it means that everything that House Democrats have tried to do over the last two years since they've taken the majority in 2018 now had a theoretical at least shot in the Senate. And one of the biggest pieces of legislation that Democrats in the House were trying to move over the last two years was related to voting rights. And so so how do these two things, the filibuster and voting rights go together, right? Why are they such a hot-button news topic right now? Yeah, so the filibuster and voting rights go together because for Senate Democrats, they're basically a binary choice for them. In the Senate, there's the filibuster. You need functionally 60 votes to pass most pieces of legislation. Right. It's not the case in the House. You can pass yes. a bill on a narrow majority in the House, which Democrats did in 2018 and 2019, now that their majority is smaller. Uh, in 2021, they do it there too. But in the Senate, you basically need to cross this threshold to pass any piece of legislation. Yeah. That means that these big sweeping pieces of legislation they're considering on everything it, it has such a tough path 
And the toughest maybe is HR1, the For the People Act, sometimes called S1, uh, which will never get really a Republican vote, probably. So Democrats who Democrats at one point have either all co-sponsored this legislation or co-sponsored the current version, but it can't become law with the filibuster. So they basically have to decide between the filibuster or HR1. Yeah. So so let's zoom out a little bit and, mm-hmm. and explain how the filibuster works now and how is it easier? Because it's changed a little bit since the kind of like idea and inception of the filibuster. Yeah. So the filibuster we know today is that a senator can basically just put a block on a bill unless there's 60 votes to to overrule that block, more or less. That bill is not it, it's not going to see the light of day. Basically, it's not going to go all the way through. There's been various iterations of the filibuster that we've seen throughout history. I think perhaps the one everyone, if you're familiar with the filibuster and you're not super obsessed about Congress, the one <laughs> you're probably most familiar with is the talking filibuster, right. where senators would stand on the floor and talk and talk and talk. Uh, you know, this is in Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of thing. We've seen it sometimes recently, um, you know, even when senators don't have to do it, some of them have done it as a show of force, maybe. Or to you know show people they're really fighting. Ted Cruz did this, at, you know, in the past few years, kind of thing. So you know, the filibuster has gone through different iterations, basically. But what it means is that basically, through various points in the Senate history, a lot of legislation needed sixty votes functionally to get through. And we have seen a quite drastic increase in the filibuster use over the last decade, certainly. Mm-hmm. Because it's so much easier. You don't have to stand up there and like talk the whole time to, to stop things from happening. But the, the kind of the genesis of the moment we're in and we're talking about can go back to this speech that former President Obama gave at Congressman John Lewis's funeral in July of 2020. John Robert Lewis. John Lewis is this icon of voting rights and civil rights for this country. So explain first what John Lewis has to do with this. And then also like the relevance of Obama you want to honor John? giving that speech at his funeral and saying what he said about Let's it. Let's honor him by revitalizing the law that he was willing to die for. You know, nobody has ever forgotten who John Lewis is, right? But in John Lewis's death, I think a lot of people have been reminded of what he fought for when he was living, which was voting rights. John Lewis has been a civil rights crusader for his entire life. He has nearly died. He has been arrested fighting for the right for black people and other minorities and and for every American, basically, to be able to vote. In 2019, John Lewis was one of the closing speeches for the version of the bill that we see the Senate talking about now, the For the People Act. And he gave this big booming speech in the chamber. Madam Speaker, you have heard me tell the story before and you know our work is not finished. You know, if not, if us, not us, then who? Then who? If not now, if not now, then, then when? Yeah. Uh, saying that they're not done fighting for voting rights. And at the time that the Senate was controlled by Republicans, so this big bill, H.R. 1, didn't go anywhere. Gentlemen's and time has expired. The soul of America. Thank you very much. When John Lewis died, I think it was a reminder to a lot of Democrats that this issue is still pretty pertinent and still very relevant that yes the voting rights act of 1965 was a sweeping incredibly important piece of legislation but there is not completely equal access to the ballot across this country you know it's not the same it's not all of that so the big thing that happened at representative lewis's funeral was former president barack obama eulogized him 
naming it the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that is a fine tribute. But John wouldn't want us to stop there, just trying to get back to where we already were. Once we pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, we should keep marching to make it even better. And called for the end of the filibuster that President Obama, speaking about H.R. 4 specifically, which is now called the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act, saying, if we can't pass this with Republican support, get rid of the filibuster. And what that bill would do, what that bill would do, would restore preclearance requirements to the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act, since 1965, has a formula in it, basically, that says these certain jurisdictions and states have to get pre-approval by the Department of Justice before they change any voting laws. In 2013, a Supreme Court case, Shelby County, uh, didn't strike down the Voting Rights Act, but said this formula is outdated. Congress, you need to go back and come up with a new formula. This formula is too old. It's not applicable in the 21st century. Congress hasn't done that. Without preclearance, it leaves a lot of the DOJ's abilities kind of tied up. There are a couple of things that stuck out about what Obama said, but the thing I think that I think about the most is when he called the filibuster a relic of the Jim Crow era. And if all this takes eliminating the filibuster, another Jim Crow relic, in order to secure the God-given rights of every American, then that's what we should do. It was this clear line that we hadn't really heard publicly and definitely not from President Obama of the filibuster and Black people and keeping Black people from doing something. And, and I think that is why it feels, advocates that I talk to feel so, so, so concerned about things we're seeing in this country and the fact that the filibuster is still here and that voting rights are on the line. Like you said, it's this binary choice. Yeah, you know, the filibuster has been used to block a lot of legislation in its history. It's not just civil rights and voting rights legislation, but perhaps the most prominent uses of it have been to block the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, or, or try to block it and try to stop changes to the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act. So Yeah, the filibuster has been used for a lot of different things in this country, Um, you know, especially over the last decade. Both parties have used it in the Senate, but its history is just so closely linked with, especially in the 1960s, blocking just landmark legislation that's kind of foundational for our country right now. It's foundational toward that push for equal representation and that push for equal access to the ballot box that you can't really unlink the filibuster from the 60s in this context. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> Strom Thurmond, a racist, um, staunch opponent of the civil rights legislation, he conducted the longest speaking filibuster, right, ever by a lone senator. I think it was 24 hours. And that is something that people point to when they say the filibuster has always been used, has strongly been used to take away rights or keep rights from Black people. So one of the reasons that the stakes feel really high right now in this conversation about the filibuster and voting rights is because there are, according to the Brennan Center, more than 250 bills in state houses around the country presented by Republicans that would restrict voting rights. And the thing you hear from voting rights advocates is that those are often squarely pointed at Black people, different keeping Black people 
um, from having access to vote, less time to vote. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So since the 2020 election, we have seen a large push from Republican legislatures to at least introduce bills that will restrict voting rights in some way, shape or form. Not all 200 of those bills will become law. In fact, the vast majority of them will not. But there are serious pushes in legislatures that Republicans control to restrict voting rights. We see this in Georgia. And and based on the lie that President Trump told that the election was stolen and creating this idea that we need more election integrity. Right. Like that is the that is the the word du jour, the phrase du jour um, that we're currently hearing from Republicans right now. Yeah. A lot of the selling points of these pieces of legislation is, well, we want to restore trust in the uh, in, in American elections. The reason that there is lower trust in American elections is not because something went wrong. Right. By basically every expert's account, the 2020 election was for considering it as the middle of a once, hopefully once in a generation pandemic. I'm not an epidemiologist, but hopefully (laughs) once in a generation pandemic, it went remarkably well. The reason there's lower trust in the election is because President Trump and his allies were trying to kick sand into the gears of democracy. And that lower faith in the election is either directly or indirectly being used to pass these laws in the name of election integrity, which in actuality will result in making it harder for people to vote and the people that will be find it harder to vote will likely, in a lot of these situations, be black people, be Latinos, be yeah. uh, college students, lower income people. Poor people, yeah. Yeah, groups that aren't, you know, privileged yeah. in our society, basically. So because of that, let, kind of lay out the stakes from Republicans. They, they don't want to scrap the filibuster and they also don't want to pass voting rights legislation. So where they stand on this issue seems pretty clear and it feels like it doesn't give Democrats um, a lot of room for negotiation. It doesn't feel like Republicans are going to change their minds on these two issues. Yeah, at least if we're talking federally, I don't know if there's any particular piece of legislation relating to this that there could be found some common ground. Um, Joe Manchin would disagree with me but he may be the only person in Washington who believes that there is some sort of common ground to be found here. He said that in an interview with our colleague Burgess Everett, that he believes it, but basically everyone else does not. Federal Republicans are going to sit there and and they're going to, you know, H.R. 1 is going to be a massive fight in in the Senate. It's going to be just an absolutely bare knuckle brawl fight (laughs) in the Senate. And it truly is a massive bill. I don't want to undersell how many things are in this bill. You know, it's not like a narrowly tailored piece of legislation only addressing voting rights. There's things on campaign finance, there's things on lobbying and ethics, there's things on overhauling the FEC. So it's it's a big bill. There's a lot of things to to look at. But there is also, um, it's less so of what the Republicans are going to do about it. It's more so what Democrats, I think, are going to do about this legislation. Because in the states where we see this voting rights legislation going forward, or, or rather this voting restricting legislation going forward, it's states that have unified Republican control. Democrats can't really do much of anything to stop legislation going through in Georgia, in Texas, in Arizona. Um, one of the quickest bills we saw passed was in Iowa, which, among other things, cuts an hour off of in-person election day voting. These are all states that have unified Republican control. So Democrats can't do anything about these pieces of legislation unless they were to act on the federal level. Now, how does that action come? Is it through HR1? Is it through the VRAA, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act? Is it through a yet not introduced piece of legislation? I don't know. But all of these meet the fundamental problem that Democrats have 50 votes in the Senate. 
So if they wanted to pass a piece of legislation, the filibuster is in the way. And they have to decide basically is do we want to pass a piece of legislation that is on voting rights or do we want to keep the filibuster? And there's really no way around that conversation for that. There are a lot of things in Washington, D.C. that you and I cover and our colleagues cover that live in this sort of gray area, right? It's it's quite murky. Um, making laws is hard, apparently, <laughs> and reporting on them are, is also difficult. What I think is really important to understanding this issue is that it really feels like people think you can keep the filibuster or you can pass voting rights legislation, that you can't do both. But there's also this question of, can you fix the filibuster? Right. Like, so, so maybe it's not a binary choice. There's a question of, is there a workaround on the filibuster? Right. Cause right now it only takes 51 votes in the Senate to get a nominee for judicial appointments. It only takes 51 votes in the Senate for a nominee for the president's cabinet. Like, could there just be a workaround for voting rights legislation? This is something Jim Clyburn, the whip in the house, um, has talked about. Yeah. You know, it sounds cliche, but you got to ask Joe Manson these questions. Well, uh, bring, him, of, go bring him here. Br- bring him. Bring him to the. Bring him to the Nerdcast. Come on, <laughs> uh, Nerdcast Senator Manchin. <laughs> we, we use him as a foil for this because you know Democrats can't change the Senate rules basically unless they have their entire caucus in agreement. So if they wanted to, maybe not scrap the filibuster entirely. If they wanted to create a carve out for voting rights, which is an idea that's been floated. If you wanted to do this bill through reconciliation, which is an idea that has kind of sort of been floated, you need the entire caucus in agreement. So, you know, there are definitely Democrats who have said loudly and clearly, I believe the filibuster needs to go. This is getting in the way of our legislative agenda. This is getting in the way of voting rights. But unless every single Democrat agrees with that statement, they're kind of in a bind. And we, I say Senator Manchin over and over again, because he's, he's the one that talks about this the most. But there are other senators out there who have at least not publicly said what they would like to do with the filibuster. You need every single Senate Democrat, from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin and everyone in the ideological middle of those two members to agree that the filibuster would need to be changed if they wanted to change it. And that that's kind of at the core of this conversation on voting rights. Not only do you have to get every senator onto a bill like HR1, which is not there yet, 49 senators are have co-sponsored the bill. I'll let everybody guess who the 50th is who has not, Joe Manchin. Mm-hmm. You need to get not only everyone to agree with the bill, agree with HR1, agree with HR4, you then also need to get them to agree that this bill is so important, I believe the filibuster should be changed. I want to talk about the kind of like the Voting Rights Act. It's not dead, right? But Section 4 was struck down, meaning that you can make decisions without kind of this pre-approval process. Now, if someone wants to bring a lawsuit against voter suppression, they can, right? You can still sue after the fact. But there's no mechanism to object and halt something before it happens. So it it changes the the burden of proof. And by the time you may realize that your votes have been suppressed, your rights have been suppressed, it might be too late, right? Like the, the election, the election might be over and it might not matter. Yeah, the part that made the Voting Rights Act so powerful is that it had a lot of sections. But Section 4, the preclearance formula... Mm-hmm made jurisdictions that historically have had a nasty, awful history on voting rights of repressing votes, of, um, you know, bad practices, they had to get approval. And that approval was not always met. It changes, it it changes the burden. It it says that basically, you know, jurisdictions can try to pass laws to whoever they want. And now you sue after the fact, after it goes into effect. You know, certainly voting rights laws are, there's a lot of, there's a lot of lawsuits about voting in America that, that will 
probably always be the case. And laws that are even passed don't necessarily immediately become law. The importance of preclearance is that it put a lot of jurisdictions basically under the watch of the DOJ. Department of Justice had final say over these laws in a lot of jurisdictions before they went into effect, not the other way around. The way it is now is that if a state wants to pass a law, they still can't pass laws that are discriminatory. They still can't pass laws that, uh, you know, create an unequal access to the ballot. That's still that part of the uh, Voting Rights Act is still in effect. But now people sue after the fact. Voters sue after the fact. Voting rights groups sue after the fact. It gets rid of that first step there that stops that law from going into place in the first place. And I think preclearance was larger than people realized, too. You know, people think, oh, bad voting rights laws. That has to be the South. Uh, That's not necessarily true. Uh, Preclearance applied to a lot more jurisdictions. It swept up into my home state in New York. New proposed formulas would cover pretty large states, New York, California. So these preclearance requirements are not just when people think voter suppression, I think unfairly think just the South. It has been a countrywide problem. It's not a Southern problem in America. It's our entire country by and large has had discriminatory voting laws at some place or another. And a lot of jurisdictions would have to get their law covered by the DOJ. And without that, basically, um, you know, it it changes the burden. It, It changes to after the law is passed and goes into effect as opposed to before the law goes into effect. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her dissent for Shelby, said it was like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And for people who argued that the Voting Rights Act was working so we don't have to do it anymore, like, do they still hold that? Do they still see that to be true, even though we're seeing the exact opposite and are seeing how states are working to restrict voting rights for people? I think the way to answer this is that the court tossed out preclearance, not because in it of itself, it was unconstitutional. They said the formula needed to be changed. Um, and that and would take that would be Congress that would change that. And that Congress, would be Congress has not done that. And Congress has not done that. And people were warning about this, too. Um, there were prominent election lawyers, and granted, this is before my time becoming a reporter, but there were prominent election lawyers before 2013, before the Shelby County yeah. uh, ruling that said, we are running a major risk right now by keeping it the same formula over and over again, that the court could strike this down and leave it empty. You know, I we're now eight years removed from the Shelby County decision, and Congress has not moved a new formula. Yeah. People saw this coming. People saw the fact that the preclearance formula very well could be struck down and needed to be revised and changed because the country we live in in 2021, uh, the country we lived in in 2013 is a very different country than the one we lived in in 1965. Yes, that is true. Something that I've been thinking a lot about as we've been reporting the story is like, it feels like this is now or never for the Democrats, right? They have this 50-50 splits in it. The midterms, we get a flip often, especially in the House, right? So this is their moment to blow up the filibuster if they want or make changes to the filibuster if they want because there are not going to be 60 votes for H.R. 1. There are not going to be 60 votes for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So do they feel the pressure to, to get this done? So putting on my purely political hat here, this is Democrats' one shot to kind of change the filibuster almost assuredly. We're heading into a midterm cycle with President Biden in the White House. Uh, Historically, the party in control does not do well in midterms. 
Democrats have literally the narrowest possible Senate majority. They have a fairly narrow House majority that, through redistricting alone, is put at serious threat, which is something we haven't even talked about today. So if Democrats wanted to change the filibuster, if Democrats wanted to pass H.R. 1, if they truly wanted to pass H.R. 1, if they truly wanted to pass the VRAA, they have to do it now. Sure. Is there a universe that Democrats pick up a couple more Senate seats and don't lose the House in 2022? Sure. I think if you ask more or less anybody who's following these races is that they wouldn't take that bet. If you're a Democrat, you wouldn't take the bet that you have unified control of Congress on January 1st, uh, 2023, or whenever the new Congress is sworn in. So yeah, the Democrats are likely operating under a very, very tight window. A window tighter still is that because a lot less legislation gets done leading up to the 2022 election. So yes, if Democrats truly want to pass H.R. 1, if they truly want to pass H.R. 4, if they want to do something else, if they want to, if they end up, H.R. 1 doesn't survive and they end up drafting a narrower piece of legislation, whatever happens, if they wanted to pass something on their own, they have to do it soon. The sense that I get from people who are protecting the filibuster on the left, they seem to be worried about blowback, right? They seem to be, and what I mean by that is that you know, at some point, Democrats won't have the Senate, whether that's in 2023 or down the road. And not having to get to 60 votes, if you're in the minority, like, that's good for you, right? Like, like something that Mitch McConnell said recently was he kind of threatened Democrats and was like, do this if you want, because, he, you know, we could pass some stuff that you're really not going to like, right? And that's true, right? And so... Do you think that there are the Democrats like Joe Manchin who are concerned about this, who don't want to get rid of the filibuster, that that's on their brain? Like, hey, guys, look at how Trump was able to remake the judiciary because he only had to get to 51 votes. Like, they've seen evidence that there are consequences to it and that the if you go to only 51, the party in power gets to do whatever the hell they want. But also, isn't that point of democracy like shouldn't elections have consequences like if you win you get to do the stuff that you promised um i don't want to pass myself off as an expert of the senate but you know we have seen the slow uh, degradation of the filibuster over over the last 10 years you know um senate democrats last time they had control got rid of the filibuster for for a lot of nominations executive branch nominations that was under harry reid and famously under president trump senator mcconnell when he led the senate did it for Supreme Court justices. So there are things in the Senate that are not the 60 vote threshold. We saw that earlier this year with reconciliation, with the with the big COVID relief bill. So there are things that people can do that you don't need 60 votes in the Senate for necessarily, which is what a lot of voting rights activists point to. They say, look, not everything needs 60 votes. Why is uh, nomination more important than voting rights and basic democracy? But, you know, I think that's probably certainly on the minds of... Um, of some of these senators and some of these senators like to cast themselves as either as institutionalists that they're thinking about the long-term health of, uh, of the, the Senate. Again, not a Senate procedure expert. Filibuster hasn't been around forever, but it's been around for some time. What I kind of find compelling or interesting rather is that right now Democrats running for the Senate who don't currently have a seat in the Senate, people in Pennsylvania in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. our colleague James Arkin just wrote a story about this. They want to get rid of the filibuster too. So the only people who kind of want to keep the filibuster right now on the Senate Democratic side is some currently serving Senate Democrats. You know, it, their reasons probably vary from 
you know, oh, if we got rid of this, what happens when next time we're in the minority, which could be in two years? Uh, it could be an institutionalist claim that that they believe the Senate operates better when you can get some sort of bipartisan consensus, when you can get 60 votes. The, their reasons kind of vary, I would imagine. But I think Democrats, by and large, are trending away from the filibuster unless you currently serve in the Senate. Wow, well, Zach, we could talk about this forever. And we wrote about this. So <laughs> so people should should take a look at that. And I think, you know, something I'm excited about is that you and our other colleagues will be covering this a lot and all the time. And we're putting a lot of resources into understanding this and redistricting and all of that. So thanks for coming. And I'm sure we'll end up talking about this again on the Nerdcast. Thanks for having me, Eugene. And that's our show. Our producers, Annie Reese, our senior producers, Jenny Ament, and our executive producers, Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. It helps more people find the show. And check out my stories every morning in Political Playbook, your unofficial guide to official Washington. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.